Good morning. As Cody said, my name is David. If I haven't met you, usually work with our students primarily, but from time to time I uh, get to preach in here, which I always enjoy. Um, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we went uh, to watch the national championship game for March Madness NCAA, and it was, uh, normally I watch it, but this year I was especially invested because it was Virginia versus Texas Tech. My wife is a Texas Tech Red Raider. She's also Texas Texas Tech Red Raider twirler, former twirler. I was trying to make that former twirler become a present twirler, and uh, I just want to say thank you. None of you signed a petition I created online to get Jordan to twirl if the Texas Tech Red Raiders won, which unfortunately they didn't, but nonetheless, thank you guys. She said she actually might twirl after service, depending on how this goes, so <laughs> just, we'll just all head out that way afterward and uh, circle around. Everybody wants to see a seven-month pregnant woman. You know, twirl, right? Be pretty cool. So, yeah. Well, we were going to a concert that night, uh, and but then, you know, sure enough, they got into the championship, so we had to watch the championship and go to the concert. So we went downtown to Marley's. Uh, he has a sports grill down there. So we walked in, and as you would imagine, packed full, packed full place. Really was Virginia fans on one side and a lot of Tech fans on the other, so we went to the Tech side. And it was a great game, back and forth, a lot of lead changes. Went into overtime, like I said, Tech lost. But it was a great experience overall. And one of the things you know is if uh, in those sort of settings, you, you can have a great experience, but you can have a bad waiter or waitress. And you really only tend to notice and remember if you had a, the waitress or waiter at all, if they were really good or if they were really bad. And we had a really good waitress that night. My wife leaned over a few times uh, just to make the comment when she would leave and say, she's a really good waitress. You know, we make sure we tip her really well. Multiple times she said, we, had, we have a really good waitress tonight. And she really was. She was uh, a remarkable waitress. She stood out to us, uh, just how she handled it in a busy situation. And there's an art, I think, to being a waiter or a waitress where you can kind of be too much or too little. And uh, some of the things that we noticed with her, she was present when needed. She was in, eager to serve, but without being intrusive. And she really enjoyed what she was doing. You know, those marks and some others that make a great waiter or waitress, and they also make a great deacon. And this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6. You can begin to turn there. It's on page 914 in the Pew Bible. As we look at the subject of deacons. In a series called uh, Church Essentials, Loving What the Church Loves. And so deacons are a necessary part of that. So post-Easter... Uh, maybe questionable, why are we doing deacons? As we're going to see here in a bit, deacons have a lot more to do with uh, the mission of Christ than we normally think they do. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, page 914. I'll read it, and then uh, you can read along with me. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And, when they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. When I was in fourth grade, my grandma, great-grandma, Papano, she passed away. I'd met her a few times. Uh, she lived in Oregon. We lived in Washington. And this was, uh, in fourth grade, this was going to be the first funeral I had attended. But it also happened uh, during the Thanksgiving break. And my parents, I didn't ask, they offered, David, you can come with us to the funeral in Oregon, or you can stay and wrestle in your Thanksgiving tournament. So I'm going to let you guess what the fourth grader in me chose. Go to a funeral or wrestle. So I chose wrestling. So I hadn't been to a funeral until I was 14 years old, at least one that I remember, uh, when I was at one in a church in a building and in a room very much like this uh, with a man who had grown up in our church uh, that I had seen as I grew up in our church. He had been part of our church for a very long time. His name was George Morgan. And there's not, I can't find a single picture of George. I asked people that I grew up with from church. I asked our old pastors people who keep track of that stuff, there's no pictures of George uh, to, be, to be found. But I can still remember him in my mind's eye. He was a guy my height, slender frame, glasses, white hair, and he had a sweet disposition about him. If you looked at him, you, you would have thought this man is non-threatening. Not because he looked small or frail, but he just was a very kind man, and it even showed in his posture towards people. I was, like I said, 14, 1999, when he passed away. Uh, so, you know, children and 14-year-olds, how much do you really know about a guy? Um, I, don't, I didn't know him on an adult level, but I can tell you as a, a child and as a middle schooler, what I knew of George was that he was kind. And though I didn't know what the word humility was at the time, he was, he was a humble man. And I was a, I'm a pastor's kid, and so you t- tends to be a very polarizing experience for a number of people. You can really tell what people think of you one way or another. And uh, George didn't tolerate me. He, he really genuinely liked me. And that, that also always stood out to me, that George was fond of me, and he was kind to me. And all that I knew about him was he seemed to be a godly man that people respected. George became a Christian when he was a Navy uh, Navy officer. He served in World War II. He became a Christian as a young adult. And in our church, it was uh, that age group, that young adult age group that George favored the most. He, he really enjoyed leading Bible study with young adults, and he did that for, for many years on Sundays. And at his, uh, at his funeral service, one, one thing that was interesting that a lot of people didn't know about was there was a table set up, and on the table was George's prayer journal. What a lot of people didn't know about George, they knew he was godly, a man of faith, a man who loved the word, but they didn't know that he wasn't just asking for prayer requests during Bible study. He was actually writing them down with dates and with names and even filling in the blanks when uh, when those were were answered. So people actually at his funeral, that they didn't even know this, for the first time they saw their names in George's prayer journal saw that he had been praying for them for a long time, that he wasn't just asking for prayer requests to do a closing prayer, but he was actually a man of prayer who who was praying over the people that he was leading and serving with, and he'd been doing that for years. George, as I'm describing him to you, you know it, he was a godly man. And George Morgan was also a deacon in our church. When I asked our senior pastor, Pastor Dave, he had pastored that church for 25 years. At that point, he and George had uh, been, been at Trinity for at least 15 years together. I asked him if he had any pictures of George, and he replied with this. He said, I don't have any electronic pictures of George, but I have some wonderful mental pictures. And then he said something that um, I think now I can appreciate and I will appreciate even more as I get older and move in, continue in pastoral ministry, but he said something that I think is probably the, the greatest compliment a deacon can receive from a pastor. 
He said this, he was a good and godly man and a great friend. I've been at other churches before this, um, one in particular, and um, that could not, th- there was not that relationship. For a pastor to call a deacon a friend is, is, a, is a really true special thing, something that we have here. He, had, he was a, a great friend. And then he said this, this is what stood out. He stood by me in, in the most difficult decisions I ever made as a pastor. Here was a man who was godly and was a deacon, and he stood by year after year pastors who had to make difficult decisions in the life of a church. And there he was right beside him every time, a lifelong loyal friend. No better testimony, no better compliment, I think, could be made about George from a pastor than that. Over this spring, we've been looking at the subject of church, church essentials. What is essential to a church? Sometimes we can take liberty with things. We can have drums or not have drums. You can have instruments, not have instruments. The Bible doesn't prescribe everything for a New Testament church, but it does prescribe some things very specifically. So we're not at liberty as Christians just to reinvent the wheel and do church our way because we don't worship God on our terms but on His. And in the same way, it's Christ who established the church on earth. And so we have to look into the New Testament to, de- to, de- to determine what Christ set up initially. What does Christ want his church to be? And how should Foothills be even 2,000 years after his resurrection? What type of church should Foothills be in light of the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus Christ? That's what we're doing. That's why we've talked about elders. That's why we'll get into baptism and Lord's Supper, church membership, the gospel, all of these things because they are essential to being a church today. And deacons is no different. Deacons are essential to being the church. If Christ loved the church, he died for the church, Ephesians 5, gave his life for it, then we, we need to care. And, uh, and this subject ought to be very weighty for us, all of, these, all of these topics. And that includes the role of the deacon, which we'll do this morning. So I said earlier the marks of a, a great waiter or wait, great waitress are also the marks of a, a great deacon. That's not, that's not just my liberty taking that. that a waiter or waitress, that's literally the English definition of the Greek word for deacon. Those are the same words in two different languages. So I'm going to read to us those first two verses again, and, and, uh, and I want you just to pay attention especially to the second to last word of uh, verse 2. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word, that second to last word for serve is uh, diakonine. It's a verb. And if you could put on some glasses and magically see the Greek behind the English in our Bibles for that one word, it would read like this. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to diakonine tables. To diakonine tables. Uh, a table waiter is a diakonos. It's the Greek word for table waiter or waitress, etc. Throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, it's used often in the verb form, not referring to the office of deacon that we now have, but simply referring to somebody who busses the table, who tends to a table. It's used quite often, and it was used that way before it became an official position, official role within the New Testament church. If I was to insert it into maybe a modern sentence right now, something I would do at my home now or growing up, I would say, you know, if I had a kid named Billy and Sally, I would say, hey, once dinner is over, Sally's going to grab drinks, and Billy is going to deacon the table, right? Or I would say, hey, Susie, you're going to help with the dishwasher, and uh, Billy, go, go ahead and go deacon the table, now that we're done, right? I would just use it that way. It's just a common word for serve, tend to the table, take care of it. We use it all the time in its English form now, but uh, it, has a, it has a Greek form, and that's 
to mean to serve, a waiter. It's a waitress. That's who it's referring to when it's not referring to its verb form. Uh, we can't forget this. We can't forget the verb before the noun. I was watching uh, Avengers yesterday. I saw the new Avengers movie. Very exciting, very good movie. And uh, there's a part in it. I mean, it's, it's, it's the end, right? It's the whole thing. It's like the, the, final, the final chapter in this saga that's lasted for like 11, 12 years. And um, there's people, you, people who uh, you, you can get a little emotional at the end, right? You get a little emotional. They were, you were, they were sobbing. There were sobs going on. I won't ruin or tell you why. But, uh, but there was, I mean, it's emotional at the end. You know, I didn't, I didn't cry. I kept it together. But I, I felt it coming on, you know? I felt it coming on. But I was with eighth grade boys. So I'm like, I cannot cry with, with the eighth grade boys here, right? They'll look at me and well, maybe I would have given them permission to do what they wanted to do as well. But it was emotional. Why? Because people have become attached to these characters over a while, uh, over this period of time. And what's interesting, what's so great about these movies is that each of these individual characters has, has their own story. They've even had one, two, three movies made about them. And we all know their origin, where they came from. So we know them as the Avengers, but we knew them before they were Captain America or Iron Man. We knew them as Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, right? We know where they came from. We know the beginning. And that's the same way we should look at Acts 6. This is the origin story for deacons. If this isn't the origin story for deacons, then we don't know where they came from because they just magically appear later in the New Testament, right? This is where they came from, men who were set apart by their church uh, to meet the physical needs of the body at the time. This is the origin story for deacons. And deacons came out of not a, hey, we have an open position, let's fill it. Deacons came out of, hey, there's a problem. It needs to be attended to. Somebody needs to serve in that area. Let's find some people to do that. Deacons, at their heart, at their origin, are servants. It's a verb. They serve. Deacons serve. Waiters wait. Twirlers twirl. Preachers preach. Teachers teach. And deacons deacon. That's how we should understand them. We should not disconnect them from what they do because who they are, who they are, we know them as who they are now, the role of a deacon, this position, but, but it really, the heart of a deacon is in what they do. They are a deacon because they deacon, okay? That's important for us to see here in these passages. So, so have you ever had a job before then that, uh, and I asked this on Facebook this week, that you smelled like it even after you, you got home, right? You, after, even after you left work, even after maybe you showered, you still smelled like your work, right? I got a lot of good responses. Some people worked at fast food, worked at Popeyes or DQ. And uh, yeah, they can still, if, I, if you say you can still right now, I ask that question, you can smell, you can smell it. You, if you cross across, went across that smell again or that place, it would flood your mind with memories of your first job, right? Or one of your first jobs. My brother mowed grass. He worked for a landscaping company in high school. And uh, we lived in Washington, so a lot of grass to mow. And he would come home. Fortunately, at this time, we were not in the same room. He was downstairs in the other half of the den. But he would come home, he would shower, and he still smelled like grass. He wore it like a cologne. I mean, he just constantly smelled like grass his last two years of high school because he was always around grass, mowing grass, doing that throughout the day. He smelled like it. I worked at AMC, so I was shoveling popcorn all the time and overcharging people for drinks and uh, candy. You know, that's like ridiculous, but we lock you in there, hold your ransom for it. So you have to pay it. So I did that. So I smelled like butter popcorn even when I wasn't at AMC, even when I took my clothes off. It gets into your clothes, but then, you know, after a while, it gets into your skin a little bit and you start to smell like it, right? We look back at those things now with a bit, a bit of fondness. Like, I'm so thankful for that experience right, in a past tense. Right? It made me into who I was today. I, I, I am the worker I am now because I had this job, pushing carts, 
bag and, bag and groceries. Like, I'm so thankful that I had that now. In hindsight, I'm thankful for it. Because none of us, right, none of us are thinking, I wish and tomorrow I could go back and do that now. If I could just go back to that, I would do that. Because you would have done that by now if you could, right? There's not, nothing standing in your way of going back to working behind a fast food counter or cutting lawns or whatever it, whatever it is that you, that you did for your first job that you aren't doing anymore. We look back with fondness at that stuff because it built character, but we look at it as beneath us. In, in fact, we got, I mean, we got promoted. That's why we're not doing it anymore. We got a better job, a different job. We're no longer doing that. We're doing this, and we, we got promoted. And it's that type of work that we tend to demean or even look down upon. You know, we're grateful for it, but we're not, we're not wishing we could go bust tables I, have, I even have uh, I've had students before. They've never had a job, and so I, I might be a reference for them. And so they say, hey, can I be a reference? I say, yeah, what are you looking to do? And they said, I don't know. I'll pretty much do anything, but I won't work fast food, right? The person who's, they've never worked a job, but fast food is below them, you know? They're like, I'll, I'll go work retail, which tells me they've never worked either jobs before if they think that retail is like that much above fast food, okay? I'll just go work retail. It's like, okay, we'll just find out here in six weeks how long this lasts, right? That's, be- that's beneath me. That's beneath me. Busting tables, picking up trash, cleaning up throw up from, the, from, you know, from a kid who bars. That's beneath me, right? I- I'm not going to do that. I'm too good for that. But it's that type of work that the Bible esteems. You see, we look at that as like b- beneath us and something to get promoted f- away from. But the Bible actually says we get promoted to that. That's actually Jesus' point here in Mark when he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if you put those glasses on again where you can see the Greek word behind it, it reads like this, for even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the, that's the word there. Jesus saw the, the, the menial things of his day, and what he's telling us is part of his church and in the kingdom is that's actually the highest position you could be. You get promoted, you get promoted to that in Jesus' kingdom, and it's something we need to embrace. Even if we don't embrace it in our work life, it ought to be something that we desire, and that's to do the lowest of the lowest tasks, the smallest tasks, the things that we think, I have a, I've got a PhD, what am I doing this for, right? I, I'm, I'm launching rockets into space, and, I, and, and I'm cleaning toilets, right? Praise God. No more glory than stacking chairs in the church, right? That's the, high, that's the highest of the high. That's what Jesus wants us to embrace. And Jesus, his, life, his, his own life, you can think about this, his life was marked by those types of menial tasks. Ultimately, the cross, we, we wear the cross around our necklace, but it was not glorious. And Jesus was stripped, and he was bare, and he was mocked, and he was sp- spit on, and he was beat. He went, the, he went ultimate, but even then, he, he washes his disciples' feet. The lowest of the lowest thing you could do at the time. The thing reserved for the lowest in line of all the household servants. The last, the newest to the job, bottom of the job chart. Hey, you're the foot washer until we get some new hires in here. That's what Jesus did. He says, as I've done this for you, do, all, so that, do also this for others. Right, Jesus is pushing us to get promoted down to these things. And the role of deacons then, one of the roles of deacons in the church, these leading servants, is to keep this servant identity of Jesus always before us. If they don't do it, who's going to? If the people who are born out of serving, born out of a need for serving, don't keep it before us, who will? The role of the deacon in the church is to keep the servant identity of Jesus always before us. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 7. Let's read those over again. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you 
seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Those those light bulb jokes. You know, how many, uh, how many, how many head coaches does it take to change a light bulb? How many so-and-so does it take to change a light bulb? There's a light bulb joke for Southern Baptists. We're a Jesus First Church. We're uh, also a Southern Baptist denomination. So how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Seven. On the Light Bulb Task Force Subcommittee, who report to the 12 on the Light Bulb Task Force, appointed by the 15 on the trustee board. Their recommendation is reviewed by the Finance Executive Committee of five, who place it on the agenda of the 18-member Finance Committee. If they approve, they bring a motion to the 27-member church board, who appoint another 12-member review committee. If they recommend that the church board proceed, a resolution is brought to the congregational business meeting. They appoint another eight-member review committee to find the best hardware store. Their recommendation, of which hardware store has the best buy, must then be reviewed by the 23-member ethics committee to make certain that this hardware store has no connection to Disneyland. They report back to the trustee board, who then commissions the trustee in charge of the janitor to ask him to make the change. By then, the janitor discovers that one more light bulb has burned out. So how many deacons does it take to effectively serve a church over 3,000? You know, at Pentecost, we read that the church had exploded, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is after that. So there's more than 3,000 people. That's a huge church. How many deacons does it take to effectively deacon to meet the needs of a church that size? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. Because that's not the question that the Bible asks. We do know that they chose seven men to solve this specific problem in the church. So how many deacons does it take to handle the food distribution of widows in the Jerusalem church? Take seven at their church. They chose seven men. We don't know how many deacons they had in that first church, but we do know that deacons are selected not based on the present size of a church, but based on the present needs of a church. When we select deacons, we don't do it based on our present size, but based on the present needs of the church. What kind of people are these? What kind of men are these in Acts 6? They are men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wise, verse 3. If you go to 1 Timothy 3, it's got a fuller list of these character qualities for the leading servants of the church. But what you'll notice, and I'll repeat it here, I'll show it to us, is that every character requirement uh, given for deacons exists elsewhere in the New Testament, but it's applied to Christians in general, all Christians. So there's actually not a difference. So they're in 1 Timothy 3, they're to be dignified, Titus 2.2, not double-tongued, 2 John 7, not addicted to much wine, Ephesians 5.18, not greedy for dishonest gain, Ephesians 4.19, sound in faith and life, Titus 2.2, blameless, Philippians 2.15, faithful to their spouse, Hebrews 13.4, Manage children and household well, Ephesians 6.4. Bottom line is that deacons, deacons exemplify a godliness that should be true of every member of the church. In other words, every Christian should be morally qualified to be a deacon. There's not two sets of standards here. 
Verse 3 continues, pick out from amongst yourselves. This is a great example between the difference of drafting new talent or developing existing talent. So we just had the draft this weekend, and Cardinals had the number one pick. And what the decision they made with that number one pick was they decided to draft new talent rather than developing existing talent. Now, they were going to draft somebody no matter what, but they chose to draft new talent instead of developing their last year's number one pick, didn't they? So that was the choice they made. That's fine. There's not... I'm not making a moral statement or a good decision, bad decision about that. I'm just pointing out the fact that they dra- we can draft new talent or we can develop existing talent. Sometimes we have to do both. When it comes to deacons, we don't have the option of drafting new talent. We have to develop what we have. You can't draft the leading servants of the church. You have to, you have to raise them. They're already there. They exist. There's no such thing as a search team for deacons, right, where we're posting job descriptions and looking out amongst America for deacons to come be deacons of this church. We raise them from within. We can't hire our leading servants, so we must raise them. And these are the seven men that they chose in verse 5. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Do you recognize any of those names? Maybe two of them, one, two. You recognize maybe Stephen, because very shortly after this, the next section after this, Acts 6 and 7, Stephen becomes a preacher. He also becomes the first martyr, uh, first Christian martyr. You might recognize Philip, because Philip also later becomes a preacher. But of these seven, five of them you don't hear anything about for the rest of the New Testament. We don't know anything about them except that their names are hard to pronounce. That's all we know. But even though they are unknown to us, they were well known to this early church, and that's important to know. That though we may not know who these leading servants were beyond their name, there was an intimate and and deep knowledge of these men and their life and their character amongst their church. They knew them well. When, When the apostles gathered the whole church together, the full number of the disciples, it says, they got the full number. Imagine the whole church getting together. It's a lot of people, a lot of people. And they said, choose from amongst yourselves wise, godly, spiritual men. That whole church came up with these seven men. That means these seven men were the first people that came to mind with that whole congregation together. Who should we choose? We know, we know some men. And the church agreed, and they brought them forward. Because these men were well-known within the church, and they were well-known not as great teachers or not as talented or not as having certain gifts. They were not known for that. They were known for character. They were known for being wise, godly, and spiritual. And the church knew them, and the church knew them very well. Who do you think of when you hear those words, good reputation, wise, spiritual, What faces, what names come to your mind in our church when you think of those things? The people that are coming to your mind right now, if they're not already serving in that capacity or as an elder, they ought to be. Those are the leading servants of the church, and they were for the Jerusalem church as well. In other words, deacons are not outliers in the congregation. Deacons aren't, hey, so-and-so isn't engaged, and so we should get them engaged. Let's ask them to be a deacon. A deacon is a, is a person who comes to mind immediately when you list out these character qualities. Because that's at the heart of being a deacon, is being, a God, is being godly. 
And that's who should come to our mind. They're the first people in your mind when you think of those words, godly, wise. I wasn't, I wasn't alive in the uh, 70s and most of the 80s. It was a time of football before my era, but a number of you remember uh, a football player for the Steelers named Jack Lambert. Jack Lambert was a linebacker for the Steelers. He was a linebacker during their uh, Steel Curtain era. They won four Super Bowls when he was on there. It's like me and Joe Green in that, that front four. He was a, a linebacker. He was part of that defense. He went to nine Pro Bowls in a row. He won Defensive Player of the Year two times in a row. Uh, he was a stud. He's considered to be the, maybe the best linebacker of those of 75 to 85 of that era. He was considered by many to be, to be the best. Again, I wasn't around back then and uh, certainly wasn't knowledgeable of football, so I but a lot of you guys know him. You might even know when you see that picture of him, you know that if he opens his mouth, he's got teeth missing, right? He had his teeth knocked out when he was in high school, so he wore dentures, but when he played football, he kept them out. So he kind of had this iconic snarl about him that a lot of people knew him for. Jack Lambert, 6'4", linebacker, uh, incredible athlete, part of, part of one of the greatest defenses uh, of all time. But you want to guess what, what it was that pushed him to retire, what, what forced him into retirement? Wasn't, wasn't concussions, wasn't head injury, wasn't a, he didn't break his femur, wasn't just getting tired. It was his toe. He had to retire because he had turf toe. Turf toe is when your big toe uh, gets hyperextended, the ligament, there's ligament damage. Typically it happens when Players are on their feet with their heel up, but then maybe their calf gets stepped on, and it causes a hyperextension of that big, of that big toe. A lot of, it's not uncommon in football players, and for him, it forced him to retire. Just think about that. Just think about the irony of a, a small little toe taking a giant man out of football. Just the smallest little appendix can have such a big impact on the whole body. It did on him. You see, the problem here in Acts 6 was a big toe in the early church. It, it, it seems like such a small problem, right? Can't we just get this, let's just get this handled. This is not, we're not talking about persecution. We're not talking about churches being burned. We're not, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about two, two groups of widows who are being treated unfairly, so with daily food distribution. It may seem like a small problem, but, but this had an opportunity. This could have derailed the whole, the whole mission, because one thing you have is you have eclectic church at that time. You have Greeks and you have Jews. I mean, in other words, you have two opposite, opposite cultures trying to become one. And you had, you had a fragile situation, delicate situation with taking care of widows. And that needed to be handled well so that favoritism wasn't being shown and so that the church would be unified, not divided in its infancy. I mean, this was a very careful, very fragile time in the early church. But it seemed like a small deal. It's just a big toe. And yet, we know that small little, small little problems like this can have a big impact on the whole body, can't they? Verse 7 reads, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The early church at this point was growing at such a fast rate, and there were so many people in Jerusalem, this Jerusalem church, that these conflicts are beginning to arise. And what we see in Acts 6 is one, uh, among many things, is one thing, and, and that's that the, the apostles, or to translate today, the pastors they can't do everything. One group of people can't do everything in the church. Right? We know this. 
They couldn't preach, teach, read, pray, shepherd, organize, execute, evaluate, follow up, disciple, set up, tear down, unlock the doors, lock the doors, count money, pay bills, mow the lawns, hang lights, change light bulbs. They can't, one group of, one group of people cannot do all those things, can they? So it takes everybody. It takes everybody in the church to play their role. Whether it's a big toe, which is God's most glorious position, right? Whether you're a hand, whether you're an eye, whether you're an ear, it takes everybody. And there's no part too small to play. As you see here, this small little part could have taken the early church totally off its mission of following Jesus. The efforts of deacons, the efforts of these servants enabled the church to stay focused on their mission as they joyfully met the needs of the church. Deacons play a vital role in, in every church because deacons keep the mission on track. They keep, they keep the church from getting distracted by these smaller things. Deacons play a vital role. It's not a small thing. It's a big deal. Deacons. I want to ask us a question. I've really been trying to whittle it down to this, to, to bring us to this point, to ask everybody this question. And there's four qualifiers for it, so I'll, I'll, I'll read those before I ask you the question. So given that, these, these are leaders, servant leaders that are homegrown, homegrown from the church. These leading servants, they're homegrown from the church. They're already there. They already exist. They're already sitting in the pews. Given that they don't have, there's not a prerequisite for the role of deacon to have a call from God to ministry like you have with pastors in Ephesians 4. So you're not waiting to God, for God to speak to you and say, I'm calling you to be a deacon, okay? And given that they need the same character requirements that's expected of every Christian. So it's, there's not, not, not two job descriptions here, not two set of rules. And given that every Christian in the church is directed already to be like Christ and to serve one another, given those four things, is there any reason that I pick five years, after five years of being engaged at Foothills, is there any reason that after being engaged at Foothills for five years that you would not be ready to deacon for a season? You don't need a call from God. You're already part of the church. The character requirements that are placed on us that God wants out of us are the same as a, as the same as a leading servant. And we're already called to serve one another. Is there any reason that after being engaged at Foothills for a while, people know you, you know them, there's trust, any reason that you couldn't deacon for a season? I want to thank again publicly Christina for sharing her story. She's been in our small group and so uh, to, to see her go from a name on a whiteboard being prayed over on a Tuesday to baptizing her on a Sunday to her sharing her story publicly on a Sunday and everything in between is in, in t 10 months it is truly God's grace and a wonderful work that he has done in her life to see her walking down the for me to walk down the preschool hallway and see this, see her teaching our children now about God and about Scripture that she's reading herself. It's it's a remarkable thing that I, I don't want to want to minimize. She does that, and she does several other things. Even even in our group, she she's the meal coordinator for our small group, so she's very gifted administratively and organizationally, and so she makes sure that everybody's doing what they should be doing for our Tuesday night meals. I bring her up because Ephesians 2 talks about the, kind of the whole sweep of God's plan for people, that, that salvation occurred in eternity past, 
that God called people in eternity past to follow him. And then he redeemed them through Christ, and he's changing them in the present, and that he's prepared in the future. Ephesians 2 calls it good works that God has prepared for us ahead of time so that we, we may walk in them. In other words, God has, for all of his people, customized, created a customized plan for you and for me already. He's, and he's prepared these opportunities that are meant just for you and just for me. He prepared them already. They're there, and we just walk into them. We just recognize them when they're there, and we live them out, and we serve, and we faithfully meet these good works that God has prepared ahead of time so that we may walk in them. Serving, meeting these needs like Jesus, living the life of Jesus through serving, this is an essential, crucial part of becoming the person that God wants every one of us to be, the person of Christ, to becoming like Christ. We must become like Christ in how he served. Service is one of the routes, one of the parts along the path to becoming mature, to becoming the person that God wants each of us to be. Must, we must go through serving. And God in his wisdom has set it all out ahead of time before you. It's right there. He's customized it. He's got it ready. He's prepared it. He knows you. He knows you really well. And he's created these opportunities. He created a, a second grade Sunday school class opening so that Christina could walk right into it. Go figure, a third grade teacher seems like a good fit, right? And God has given every one of his children a spiritual gift, a unique, a unique gift for the explicit purpose of serving other people. He's given it to you for that reason. So he's not only given you the ability to do it, but he's created the opportunity ahead of time for us so that we would walk into it. For, so that we would walk into it. So if you've been, if you've been around uh, for months now, you're not a member of the church, you're, you're, you're sitting back, you're kind of considering it, you're, you're there, you're around, but you, you, haven't, you haven't committed to, to becoming part of a local church. Uh, my, my encouragement, my next step for you, my challenge for you is next week, come to Discover Foothills. Discover Foothills is our, our way of inviting you in to taking that next step to becoming that mature disciple that God wants you to be. And, and, and come to that next week and then come to it after Mother's Day. It's just two weeks. No, no promise after that, no obligation, but just take that next step. If you've been, if you've been coming you, and the extent has been sitting, coming, joining in in worship and participating and engaging and growing on a Sunday. It's time, time for that next step, and that's to be a part of the church, just like Acts 6 records, 3,000 people. There were people, they were known by name, they were a part of the church, and, uh, and, and, and life happened, and they grew. My encouragement is come to Discover Fiddles next week. If you are a member, if you are serving, if you got more than you can handle, uh, I want to say first, thank you. Uh, there is so much that goes on uh, in the ministry of this church to its, to its people and to the people outside the church that each one of us just is totally unaware of. There is so much that happens on any given day that does, doesn't get posted to Facebook. It doesn't get mentioned from the pulpit, and we just are ignorant of it, but it's happening all the time. Every Sunday, whether it's the air, AC getting turned on or the doors unlocked or the lights on or the slides happening or the grounds being picked up. I mean, all these things that we just take for granted. People are at, you're actively serving, teaching children, locking up the doors to make sure they're safe. There's so much going on. Thank you. Thank you for serving and, and, and for not expecting a pat on the back. You just do it. You're just doing it because that's what Jesus wants you to do. You're just doing, you're just doing your job. 
That's what you would say. So thank you. So if that's you, you can really help us. We can't see it. One person can't see everything. One person can't not only do everything, but one person or one group of people can't see everything. And in Acts 6, here verse 7, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that on the heels of this small ministry opportunity being met, it's not a coincidence that the result of that is verse 7. It's not a coincidence that verse 7 says, and the word of God, as a result of what happened here in verses 1 through 6, and the word of God continued to increase. It was increasing, it continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 7 is not just like, Luke's like, oh, we'll put it there for no reason. There's a reason that this comes on the heels of this important work of ministry in the church by these leading servants. So what I'm asking you to do is if you're part, you're serving, you're engaged, I don't have to convince you. Would you just put your eyes for the next week or two? Would you just keep and keep them there? Put your eyes to the, the ministry of the church, to its members, and to the possibility of our ministry to the place that God has put us in Albuquerque. Would you keep your eyes open for these ministry opportunities? Don't discount a small, a, something so small that's not getting done. Don't discount the big toe because when one part of the body is not functioning correctly, we feel it. I am, I am near death, I think, whenever I get a sinus infection. My life is over, right, when my sinuses aren't acting correctly. I'm good for nothing. My feet, my arms, they're healthy, but they're totally inv- invalid at that point. When one part of the body, one part of the body isn't functioning properly, it affects everything. And that's just not a great metaphor that I made. That's scripture. Because it's true. Because we are a body. We are a collective family. We need to function together. We are, there are relationships, and if one part of the body is not working, we all feel it. So I think that there are opportunities. In fact, I know that there are more good works that God has prepared for us ahead of time that we haven't stepped into yet, and that we're going to need to see. We're going to need to recognize when they come. And I also know that myself, or the pastors, or even the existing deacons, we can't see it all. Not, not one person in here can see it all, but collectively, if we keep our eyes open, where else is God wanting to move our church? What, what opportunities has he placed ahead of time that the good news of Jesus is yet to penetrate, but we could see real restoration through the gospel in this area, both in the body and both outside the body? Would you, would you keep your eyes open on that? Would you keep your eyes open on that? And if you see, and if you see something, say something. You, you, you're going to know, you, chances are you know a pastor, and chances are you know, you know a deacon. Because chances are when I said godly, wise, and spiritual, you thought of at least one of those people. So you know somebody Tell, tell somebody, and, and together, working together as the whole church, let's see, let's see the works that God has prepared for us. He planted this church here 30 plus years ago. If he didn't want us here anymore, it, we would not exist. We would no longer be here. But it's God's will that he has something else for us because we're still here. What is that? We need to all work together. And if we have eyes to see it, we can all be a part of the mission to engage people to put Jesus first in their lives for the sake of others. So can we do that collectively? Let's pray. Let me ask God to help us do that together. God, we come before you, and we are thankful that in your sovereignty and in your grace and mercy that, first of all, you chose us. You didn't have to. There was nothing about us, nothing likable, nothing that merited your favor, and yet you chose us to be part of your family. And here we are today.
we didn't, we didn't find you. We didn't, uh, we didn't do this on our own efforts. God, you, you initiated. We thank you not only for choosing us before, before you even created the world, but we also thank you that uh, Christ died for us. We thank you that because of Christ's death for our sins, that we can have new life, and we can have the life that we were intended to have before sin. God, I pray that my, my request from you, that you would make this true of our church, is that you would give us eyes to see the good works that you have prepared ahead of time for us. The custom, intentional opportunities that you have created for your people with spiritual gifts and that you've knit together just how you wanted them, uniquely at this church, that you would give us eyes to see these opportunities so that there could be more stories like Christina, so that a great many number of people would come to the faith, so that disciples would multiply, so that the church would continue to increase, so that you could be glorified. God, would you help us to do that? Give us eyes to see those things work in us and work through us, not individually, but collectively as one body, having one mind and one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand